てるるてるるてるるるてる聞いたれんでした。I kept it in last time. Oh, right. Yeah, it's,、uh, it's it, like it happens before the actual team plays. It's cold open. Yeah. We're like the US office or something. Beautiful. Italian kissing noises. Hello and welcome to the Hogs Watch edition of Radio Moorport. Happy Hogs Watch, everybody. Happy Hogs Watch. Happy Hogs Watch, Rose. Happy Hogs Watch. Happy Hogs Watch, Colin. Happy Hogs Watch, Steve. Yes, Steve's giving away the. Well, no, he's not quite giving away because we talked about that <laughs> last episode. But Rose is here again. It's Rose and she's here to take over the school again. Just like Armand Tanzarian. <laughs> I wish that wasn't my comparison. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Yeah. And today we are talking about the Hogfather. Hogfather, of course. Yeah. So before we before we jump into that, Steve, do you want to um, let the refresh the listeners? Of course. Yes.、Um, absolutely. So just to refresh everybody's memory, it's Hogwarts, Hogwarts Eve, and the Auditors of Reality have paid the Assassins Guild a huge fee to assassinate the Hogfather. The Guild sends an assassin named Teatima, a young, dangerously talented assassin who employs a small gang of criminals for the mission. Meanwhile, Det's granddaughter Susan has found a job as a governess in Angmorpork, and is attempting to be open quotes normal close quotes. When Det appears to her dressed as the Hogfather, he tells her that he is covering for him because he is unavailable. Susan attempts to fix this, seeking help from numerous sources, including the Death of Rats, Quoth the Raven, the God of Hangovers, and the Wizards of Unseen University. At the university, she learns that excess belief is creating small gods, like the God of Hangovers, to compensate for people not believing in the Hogfather. While Death continues to distribute toys and encourage belief, Susan eventually makes her way to the land of the Tooth Fairy. Here, she discovers Teatima is using the teeth of children to control children into not believing in the Hogfather. Susan manages to break this spell, allowing the Hogfather to be reinvigorated by belief. Once she has done this. Death takes Susan to the Castle of Bones, where she saves the Hogfather from the Auditors. Finally, Susan and Death have a final confrontation with Teatima in Susan's lodgings. She manages to kill him using the fire poker that, as the children know and fully believe, is used to kill monsters. So that is the plot of uh, this uh, novel. Um,、oh, you what?、Uh, I read the wrong one. Oh. <laughs> All of that stuff you were saying. <laughs> didn't read any of that. You read Jack Kerouac's、uh, <laughs> "The Road" or something. Yeah. <laughs>、um, yeah, it's a very festive themed one. Very appropriate. We timed this very well. Yeah.、Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I suppose. Thought that massive gap between now、uh, was that Soulmate was going to interesting times about about a month was just sheer disorganization on our part. No, 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 <laughs> we, no. We, we were doing this. Here、so. we are. Bang、so. on the money with our timing.、Yeah. So、um, I suppose ask、uh, Rose. You haven't. You, have you read this one recently, or is this the first time you read it, or second time, or? I. Well. I will say I read it recently, but I didn't actually pick up the paper copy recently. I listened to the audiobook by Tony Robinson. Oh, that's great! Yeah, because I do love a good Tony Robinson narration. Yeah. So um, yeah, my experience is the audiobook now, as opposed to the paper. But it's a, I presume verbatim copy. So I think I'm still no, I'm working Tony, on the same text. No, the Tony Robinson ones are abridged. Um, and this is this is uh like a lot of the a lot of them I'm either was introduced to on、uh, like the Tony Robinson audios,、mm-hmm. or I'm much more familiar with from like you know listening to. Uh, loads and loads, but they're actually uh, uh, like a bridge. They cut bits out to make them fit the 
uh, runtime. Really? Um, was oh. it Nigel Planer or oh, there's some other guy? They read the the unabridged ones. Oh. Um, but it's a real pity because I, I remember like going onto the uh, Discord Reddit and seeing these big debates about like. Oh, who'd you prefer? I can't remember the other fellow's name, but like Planer or whoever. Mm. And I was like, oh, Tony Robinson, obviously. And someone brought it up, and they were like, Oh yeah, but Robinson does, you know, the abridgings. But he does, he does them so well. His <laughs> voices are amazing. Yeah. His inflection is so perfect. It's great. So does he cut out all the Christmas bits or something in this book? Or? Uh, I can't remember which bits get cut out, but like um, it, it definitely like death isn't in it. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. And he cuts out like the letter E for like just for you know the sake, <laughs> sake yeah. of yeah. all the all the does and ands <laughs> words like that. Um, it's, it's just one long run on sentence he doesn't pause it's like the last chapter in Ulysses that's yeah. how he does it yeah. oh yeah yeah that sounds really enjoyable oh it was yes I'm sure um, <laughs> oh and he does he, get, he gets the humour across really well he just seems to like understand it like so many of the ones I would be uh, have, lit, have heard him do the audios of when I'm reading it like I'm reading it and his voices and you know those jokes hit home much better for me when I can remember him reading them. Hmm. Um, I agree, and I like how he does all the voices. His yeah. his voices for death and the others, and even his voices for the children are really funny. <laughs> <laughs> because all he does is go Susan. like Susan. <laughs> uh, so, what do you guys think of the book, anyway? So, I really, really liked it. Um, it's it's weird. It's a bit of a throwback in some ways. It feels like a throwback to the like. Ones around maybe the time of moving pictures, uh, which is abroad, of all these ones where it was like about the power of belief and the power mm. of stories and things like that, um, and it also ties into lords and ladies with that sort of um, deep folk belief mythology stuff, the darker side of that mm. coming out. But like, what's Hogswatch? What's Christmas really about? About like sacrifices and what's it like blood and the sun and snow and I absolutely. <laughs> eat all that out up with a spoon like I love <laughs> that so much and you know it's yeah it's it, it's unpacked wonderfully well and I think it does a really good job of balancing the kind of I suppose like the sweetness and romance we associate with like modern Christmas and that they do with Hogswatch mm. with those like darker undertones you know it never yeah. kind of settles for oh you might think Hogswatch is just all nice and you know fairies and giving presents to one another but it's actually this you saps you know <laughs> or says like oh thank god we moved on from that savagery it manages to kind of yeah yeah juggle the, juggle the two I think very actually deftly. there's a great moment in uh, early on where Susan leaves the house for the first time she's just setting out to right I'm going to fix all this and she's just describing the landscape all covered in snow mm-hmm. and she says in the morning this is all of like you know meshed with the mud to become a kind of sodden grey as like that's very like Ank Morpork but uh, here he's um, Terry Pratchett says like you know but for the moment it just looks like beautiful and it's like it's one of those rare moments where he allows the place to look really really nice and sound really really nice even though there is still a lot of cynicism like yeah, peppered throughout the yeah, book that's true so uh, yeah I, I like the fact that he keeps the imagery like you know quite nice and like there's a lot of other examples of that like you know the little matchstick girl and you know the image of Albert looking in the store window even though that uh has its own little twist on it towards the end, which is great. I yeah, I, I like that bit too because sort of Det says, you know, he says, "But Albert, this is dad. He wanted a big, big fancy wooden horse in the shop, and his dad made him a little one." And Det says, "Like ah, that meant more to you than anything." <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I wanted that horse. That's how I was not kids. <laughs> and and it, it really is as much as it's a book about kind of winter and Christmas. It's a book about childhood too. Oh, definitely. And about how, like. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of adults and like culture in general just has the wrong idea of what the world is to children absolutely um yeah, that oh, i think there's a line somewhere about like children's world is just adults but like written in bigger letters or something like mm. that so thing and it's true things just do seem a lot bigger and more vivid and kind of uh yeah scarier in that way like it's yeah a, it's one thing that i i'm actually really impressed when i was reading this like I, I'm, I'm not going to keep raving about how great the book is there, there are bits of it that i didn't like but we'll get to that in a minute but one thing that I really enjoyed about it is Terry Pratchett really seems to understand children like really really yeah. well in this like uh, the uh, like that bit with Albert is really profound. I don't I don't think that's something that many people would write because they'd be like they don't want to be that cynical about mm-hmm. children. They don't want to think that like oh no kids would appreciate that gift. Like, kids don't appreciate that gift. They want like you know what they want. They see something on TV that they like oh wow this is the big thing. Yeah, that's what they want. And you can't really convince them otherwise. You know. There's a good bit at the very end when uh, Tia Tima sees the um, Gawain and Twilight coming in and he says like, ah, oh, golden-haired little tots and it says how they kind of regarded him cynically and that yeah. he would have been better off calling them little bastards because <laughs> kids can tell when they're being, you know, lied to or talked down to in that way. So. Exactly, yeah. It, it's some, it, um, it sort of reminded me that part of uh, Roald Dahl books because I think I remember, I think I was talking to both of you about this before, that I remember I read them a lot when I was a kid, and I remember thinking, oh, they're lovely, very wholesome books. But if you go back, there's a lot of very <laughs> dark yeah. stuff going on in Roald Dahl books. Like, you know, like, I'm trying to think of an example now, but, like, um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I just remember there was a lot of very, very dark bits going on in there. Like, but giants eating children, yeah. like, of course, obviously, stuff like that, you know? Really, well, really grim stuff. I, I, I also have the scariest part about Roald Dahl books is that he never depicted the horrible thing going on as um, a big uh, kind of exception like the usual way you structure a story is there's normality and then something comes along to disturb that normality and then that disturbance is defeated so it's not like mm-hmm. everyone was happy and then these witches came or then these giants came it's he tells you this has always been happening and you yeah. just didn't know about it and there's you kids go missing kids being eaten and this just happens and it's the way the world works and everyone's putting up with it um, and so it could be you next and you know like I, I think like Pratchett sort of has a similar view of how, of how kids mm. um, look at the world in that way and that they kind of a lot of dangers they just take for granted and like you know see them as um, like just normalize them in some way but it doesn't make them any in some ways it doesn't make them any less terrifying for that you know mm, absolutely um, like the kids uh, Gawain and Twilight talk about um, you know they get really excited about Susan hitting the uh, boogeyman with pokers but Susan also talks about uh, Twilight wetting the bed because mm-hmm. like presumably like uh, when one of the like monsters were there presumably out of like fear so it's kind of like they can normalize this and be like oh it's a monster Susan will get rid of it but that doesn't mean they think it's like you know don't think it's uh, scary or anything like that yeah right. um, yeah I think the fact that uh, Terry Pratchett understands the kids so well, I think it's why the final message that he's trying to convey comes across so well. At the end, that, that line that Death has where um, he says children need like these to believe these little small lies so they can learn to accept the bigger lies, mm-hmm. which that's such a complex statement and it, it just hits home so well for me. It's just like... The idea that the big lies likes of justice and mercy yeah. and like you know all that sort of thing. Do you mind if I read that bit? It's oh yeah, of course, my, yeah, yeah. Like it's it, it's probably a, like a highlight I think in yeah 
And actually, just while you're, look, while you're looking for that, um, I, there's another quote that Terry Pratchett said once um, in relation to this, but the quote is, fantasy is like an exercise bike. It won't take you anywhere, but it tones the muscles that might. Huh. And it's Very a good. really, really nice, like little. It's a lovely idea, you know. That yeah. you know. Uh, sorry, you, you read the line there. Yeah, sir. So this bit at the end, it's uh, all right. Said Susan, "I'm not stupid. You're saying humans need fantasies to make life bearable. Really, as if it was some kind of pink pill. No, humans need fantasy to be human, to be the place where the falling a- angel meets the rising ape. Tooth fairies, hog fathers, little yes." As practice, you have to start out learning to believe the little lies so we can believe the big ones. Yes, justice, mercy, duty, that sort of thing. They're not the same at all. You think so? Then take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and then show me one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy. And yet, death waved the hand, and yet you act as if there is some ideal order in the world, as if there is some some rightness in the universe by which it may be judged yes but people have got to believe that or, or what's the point my point exactly mm. um and yeah it's it's great because in one way it's incredibly sort of uh cynical view of the world in some ways it's saying like there's no inherent justice or yeah. beauty and in other ways it's saying it's very hopeful yeah it's very hopeful right? because it's saying like we we make that and it's a good thing that we make it it's like mm. it's what makes us who we are you know um, and I love that because um, I remember the first time I read that I just I read it and I just loved it instinctively I thought that's a beautiful line then I started thinking about it and like you I thought wow it's actually very cynical and then obviously I thought about it some more and I was like no wait actually the fact that like because you know the idea of children believing in the fantasy when you're a kid and when you believe in like all these fantasies like the likes of Tooth Fairy uh, Santa Claus whatever they are real to you mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what they are it's what they are to you that matters and it is very much the same for the likes of mercy, justice, you know, fairness, all that sort of thing. That if you believe in it, like if you believe in mercy and all these things can exist, there's nothing to say it doesn't, you know? Yeah. There's no objective way. Well, because like the likes of mercy and justice, they are all like human things, human things that we invented. If we believe in it, then essentially they do exist is kind of the message that I'm getting from yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, like the Hogfather or like... Exactly, yeah, yeah. 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 Things like that. There have been studies done that say um, reading fiction uh, like makes you more empathetic as a person. Um, and that's sort of is part of this, isn't it? You've got to kind of build these things to mm. believe in. I liked it, the bit at the end too when um, Susan throws the poker and it goes through debt and uh, impales Tiatime yeah. because it has the power of the kid's belief. And um, I love that bit where... The uh, Death says they know it only hurts monsters, and Susan says, "But he's human, and Death just survives." I think they know exactly what he yeah, is. Yeah, um, wonderful. But but that ties into it, doesn't it? Because their belief around the poker and kind of around Susan as well, like like she's like an almost supernatural figure for them. You know, she comes mm. and solves problems and defeats monsters. Right. But that also helps to find their bigger morality, just just this mercy duty stuff, where they can identify. They've got a seven foot tall skeleton, and they've got this relatively normal normal looking human there and they can you know use senses of uh, mercy and justice and empathy albeit childlike to say like no this is the bad thing in here you know that's um, a really good point too yeah yeah uh, so that, that like uh, just segueing into what do what you guys think of Tiatima <laughs> I love him so he much he is an astonishingly good villain like yeah. he I think in, from what we've read so far, I know I came into this world a bit late now, like um, later than you guys, but 
thus far I think he's the best villain that he's put together like I really can't think of anybody who comes close like he's so well written he's brilliant he's uh and the fact that he is in essence a child as well like everything that's terrifying about him I think is the fact that he's basically what would happen if you transplanted the brains of a child into a really competent killer Mm-hmm. You know, because he just does things and like the way he feels. That, like that point when he's on the horse and cart, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he eventually what was it? The driver needs to throw the magic dust in order to open the gate into the child's drawing. Yeah. And uh, once he uh, Timmy, I'm just gonna call him Tea Time. It's easier. <laughs> <laughs> once he figures out that's all he needs to do, he just kills him, and then really cheerfully says, oh, "Wasn't he dull?" And it's like. That's almost exactly what a child would do, like, if, because he doesn't have any idea of consequences. It's like, oh, like, uh, there's, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example, like, do you know when, like, the small animals and they pull the legs off the flies mm-hmm. and stuff like that? And, like, that's just something kids do because they have no concept of, like, you know, other people. Like, you know, it's like the mirror stage, but, you know, not as uh, black and white. Lacanian? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, do you like him too, Rosa? Yeah, I loved him. I was speaking to somebody about Hogfather recently, and this person has read all of the Discworld novels, loves all of them, obviously. And his favorite scene in Hogfather is the scene where Tea Time, yes, we'll just call him Tea yeah, Time. Yeah, it's easier. Um, <laughs> is he's talking to the head of the Assassins Guild, and the head of the Assassins Guild says, "We need you to inhume this man," and is expecting him to laugh or look incredulous or something, and instead, it's like, hmm, difficult. Yeah, but I have a way. And it goes on to say that his planned ways to get rid of the Hogfather, the Easter Bunny, the Sandman, that he has created ways to assassinate fictional characters <laughs> or mythological creatures. Like, I, I really want to see his list of things he knows how to kill because I imagine that it's quite long and he's put a lot of time and effort into it. He's just a really interesting character. Like, it's such an odd worldview that he has that you can't even relate to it, but it's so very very entertaining to read mm. i can't imagine um <laughs> how you sit down and write a character like tea time like, yeah um it's it's interesting like he's uh he spent so much of his time with medium dave and the rest of the guys who aren't hugely sympathetic in themselves and that probably helps mm. the fact because he is one of the more like in some ways he's one of the more simple disc villains that there's no angle you can look at him that makes him sympathetic he's not mm. someone like you know, Dios or even like someone like Vorbis or Lily Weatherwax who are absolutely horrible, but you can see why yeah. they think they're right. Right. Um there's no really you know, there's no real way you can relate to his his point of view. So it sort of helps that he's with these guys that there's this tension of like you can see the fear they have of him and that he might do something, but you're also not too concerned that like okay, if he just snaps and kills Peachy here, I'm not gonna be I'm not too bothered, you know, it's it's not kind of a stigma turning. It's not like yeah, I know. Like reading something like, um, uh, uh, say, uh, this is a reference to a whole other series, but like reading the like um, Sansa Stark chapters in A Clash of Kings and Sword of Storms right. or Storm of Swords, where she's like in this court full of people who all hate her and you want to use her and so on, and you're kind of on uh, constantly worrying that like, oh, I hope something horrible doesn't happen to you know doesn't happen to her. Here, here you've got this guy who's incredibly dangerous and incredibly horrible. But he's sort of surrounded by guys who are kind of interesting enough to read about, but not all that sympathetic. Mm. So you're not like you're not worried, but you're interested in seeing what he's what he's going to do. Right. Uh, it's also great seeing his morality offset with theirs, because they're obviously the bad guys. They're career criminals. They're mm. thieves and and 
thugs mm-hmm. and yet they're the ones that are saying yeah but my mum says don't hit girls yeah. <laughs> like, yeah yeah you go what am I saying <laughs> yeah I think it's like it's actually a bit of a strength and a weakness in that I found them a little too sympathetic in mm-hmm. a way by the end of it it's like I, I shouldn't be rooting for you but maybe you know it really does emphasize what an evil bastard tea time is like the fact that I am rooting for somebody who's like killed robbed you know, all these things. The one I really felt for is Medium Dave because all of the other ones, when did their kind of own childhood terrors come to get them? Mm. Uh, Peachy and Chicken Wire and Cat's Eye. It happens as they're trying to like get Susan or get Bilious and Violet. So there's a sense of relief. You feel like, oh, this horrible thing just happened, but at least like these characters we like more got away. Mm. Whereas like the kind of weird specter of uh, Mal Lillywhite comes out and kills him when he's going to leave and like just get him and Banjo and go home and abandon the anyway. So yes. you're, you're like, oh, and this, this like the uh, boogeyman Tooth Fairy character really is an exercising and he's, um, you know, sense of uh, um, morality or ethics here. It's just the kind of case of killing anything that like that poses a threat, you know, mm. poses or has posed a threat to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just on a side note, like, um, this is just another rant about how much I love this. I absolutely adore Chicken Wire's backstory. The whole, the closet that, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. it's absolutely terrifying that because I think that's something that I think speaks to every single person who's ever been a child, you know? <laughs> Cause like, I, I know yeah, there was no, like, <laughs> oh, no. <Mrs>. Trunchbull. <laughs> like I had, uh, this old, um, it wasn't like a wardrobe per se. It was like a walk-in, like it was kind of a, hollowed out part of the wall you could walk into but at night when you were it was it was like everything you could kind of see like a bit of light but that was always pitch black pitch black so you couldn't see into it and like i remember sitting awake and like it wasn't didn't didn't sit awake like or lie awake like plenty of nights but there was definitely a couple of nights where i was looking at and thinking that's actually kind of scary (laughs) like yeah so the idea of like this wardrobe just coming back and you know him being sucked into it it's probably the most terrifying thing I think a child could possibly conjure up yeah. in their heads. And as a result, it's terrifying to us. And I love the fact that this is the first uh, Discworld novel that I feel delves a little bit into actual horror. And it stems completely from the ch- a ch- child's view of horror mm-hmm. rather than, like, you know, an adult's view of horror. Like, you know, you've had your assassins, you've had, like, the things from the dungeon dimensions, you've had dragons... But it's these little things that kids imagine in the night and like, yeah. you know, things like bullies and actually um, medium days, ma, I actually thought like, wow, that's terrifying. Like imagine like your, your own mother when they're towering over you. Yeah, and like, you know, it's like, adults is, uh, it's like you yeah. know you're in trouble now. So it's it's so much different like from, you know, the other kind of things you'd be scared of as a kid. I, I was talking about this on, on the True Twitter account. If you were uh, Shanghai into the Tea Times gang and we're in that tower and then the uh, two fairies start sending your childhood fears after you what would end up coming for you? Ooh, uh, for me childhood fears um, <laughs> uh, well the one thing that I always met was one of the first things I was ever really scared of uh, this is going to sound like a little bit of a tangent but uh, if you've ever seen Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey there's a bit in that where uh they go to their own personal hell and i think uh bill is forced into like a a younger version of himself where he's at his granny's hundred and something birthday party and she's trying to give him a kiss Mm -hmm. and she's got these horrible like whiskery mouth and these cracked teeth (laughs) 
and it's the most hideous thing. I had nightmares about it for years. And I'd always imagine this like disfigured old woman, like you know, like coming down my corridor. So that'd probably be it. Like this horrendous old woman coming to give me a kiss. Oh, wow. That that would fit right in. Yeah, I know. It'd be horrible. Medium Steve. <laughs> Shit, should have been there. It'd be medium rare Steve. <laughs> you would after she was true. Would you? How about you, Rose? What would yours be? Um, I think mine would actually be from a horror film and you guys know I oh, can't yeah you know what I is. know what this is oh yeah. I don't <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't watch horror films I'm terrible with horror and I can watch things like zombies and aliens and things that happen remotely and far away and things that might happen in the real world through mass release of toxins or whatever what I can't watch is horror films that take place within the home or ghosts no. because that seems very real to me and when I was younger, for some reason, I accidentally watched or else thought I was braver than I was. And I tried to watch The Sixth Sense. And my worst fear for years was a scene in The Sixth Sense where there's a little boy and he goes out of his bedroom at night. And he walks up to his kitchen to get a glass of water and there's a woman standing there and she turns and she slit her wrist. But that's not even the fear. Oh. It's that thing of walking around in your own house and having somebody turn around and then start to, like, oh, yeah, yeah. that was a <laughs> So somebody chasing me in my own house um, unexpectedly, probably that exact woman. Yeah, yeah. they all haunted me. Can't watch horror films. No. That would be mine. <laughs> wow. That's, that's quite grim. <laughs> How would you go? What would yours be? Uh, Tell me it's like a giant marshmallow bear or something <laughs> trying to eat you. Yeah, you know? something childish. No, I, I was, I was uh, tweeted to say it. Was, I, I remember, and I've got to talk to my folks about this because I don't know where they got it. But um, but I remember they had this thing where they would like uh, the sort of boogeyman you conjure up to um, scare kids. You know, where it's like go to bed or so and so or whatever. With me, it was this like series of color coded women where it was like, like what? Like uh, if you don't eat your dinner, like a like a purple lady comes and, and takes you, oh and God. like if you don't do your homework or don't whatever what else I'd be doing, like don't you know get, like go to bed, eat, go to bed. A green lady comes, and I just thought I always had this worry of kid of just like like that kind of like mysterious disappearance. Like I remember sharing a room with my brother, and I would check to see if he was still there, like when he had fallen asleep, and I I was awake because I just had this idea that there were. A, like some kind of forces that could just you know you, you'd go like mm. it wasn't like like a bad man comes up in a car and you're tangibly physically you know dragged off somewhere mm. it was just that like something would come and take you and then you'd be gone so um and they were just kind of like faceless and vague but uh yeah this impression of colors and um darkness and disappearance and that's mm. what would probably come for me that's pretty yeah that's 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 again that'd probably fit in really well because it's interesting how stuff like stories like that can really influence like our fears yeah. and things. I mean, I know for me it was just t- for us it was just TV, you know. But, uh, that's that's the that's how we hear our stories now. But, but it's interesting yeah. that you had kind of something of a folk tale. Well, it's it's when uh, as a kid, it's it's where like fear flows in the holes in your understanding, right? Like mm. it's like that you can't, you know, like uh, rationalize certain things, and um, because that probably because that was so vague, like if it was something really specific, you know, like if they whatever whoever that kind of boogie mounted deer would have been like uh i don't know like saddam hussein or like you know uh like the yorkshire ripper or something go, yeah. go, come and get you it wouldn't maybe it wouldn't have been so bad but it was like that like there there was enough kind of like it was vague enough that then i had to like i just like filled in the gaps mm. with like you know formless powerful fear you know what i used to have a weird all right i used to have a weird way of thinking 
Um, it's the Luros, but go on. This is true. Oh, I used to have a very strange way of thinking where, you know, you watch enough of these shows and films and it's always like, oh no, somebody opened a book and it contained a weird spell and now this has happened or, mm. oh no, somebody broke the wrong mirror and now this has happened. Mm-hmm. I used to always wonder and be really curious and a little bit afraid that I would break a rule that I didn't know existed oh, wow. because I, I, did, I wouldn't have heard that rule, but there would have been one. So the wrong picture falls or the wrong thing happens or you look in a mirror the wrong way. And you don't know how to prepare for that because you're preparing for the thing that you don't know what it is. Imagine that actually was true and that's like, you know, why we have any unsatisfying jobs or like why we're single. (laughs) It's like, oh yeah, I glanced in the mirror on a Tuesday. It was terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, I set the clock backwards um, by 57 minutes instead of a full hour one time. And oh my God, those three minutes of my life are still catching up with me. I set the toaster to five. Like I've been burned by it ever since like the, the fear of being punished for something you don't know feels very Prichetti and you're the supernatural equivalent of that fella in Masquerade you know who goes along to the opera and is like researching what's his name oh, he's, he's like he's name. the uh, Enrico Basilica's son like but he but he doesn't know it but um he, he's constantly researching and constantly worried that he's going to do something wrong or say something <laughs> wrong and you know there's just like there's this sort of uh, like you see the same mentality and like that uh, tooth fairy bureaucrat fella who shows up to Violet's apartment when um, when uh, Susan and um, Billius are there and he's like, oh, probably you know they'll probably blame me and it's like this is a guy who would be uh, would be worried when the world ends someone yeah. like think it's his fault. Right. It's like like that kind of mentality of like I'm really worried about someone punishing me for something I don't understand. <laughs> well, that's a pretty it's valid fear. Yeah, but it's actually fair. There's also, sorry, there's a wonderful line in that bit um, when I go to Violet's, uh, go to Violet's apartment and Susan says something like, oh, I can't find it here, I'd underlined it, but it's like, it had the impression of somewhere she didn't intend to stay for very long. It was amazing how people could end up living most of their lives in places they never yeah. intended to stay very long, which I thought is so grim in a really kind of mundane adult life yeah. sort of way. Right. Uh, completely different on uh, the rest of the stuff of the book but just like deftly put in there you know it doesn't, it doesn't feel out of place but it jumped out at me because it's like oh yeah this is a much bigger fear for me as an adult <laughs> than, than monsters under That's, the bed absolutely <laughs> yeah oh god actually I'm just on the note of like I know we're talk, we're focusing a lot on the whole fear aspect but that interests me a lot but were you guys ever afraid of Santa Claus when you were growing up? Because you know the whole bit in the in the the mall, spelled M A U L in this book, mm-hmm. um, and the whole idea of the kids, you know, they sit in the lap and they just kind of look up in absolute terror and awe and say, "Yes, yes, thank you, thank you." Mm-hmm. You know, like really, like you know, they don't know how to speak to him. And I feel like that's the way a lot of people reacted to Santa Claus, like when they were kids, like because uh, I remember uh, my niece and nephew went when they were about two or three years old and they screamed their heads off they just couldn't hack them they just didn't like them at all and I, I don't think I ever really had a problem with them but I remember one time saying to my parents I'd really like to stay up and see Santa and um, my parents said no no you can't do that and I was like why not he, oh, hates he, he hates children that's exactly what they said he hates children <laughs> and I was like oh 
And he just didn't question. He's like, okay, he's just got like tons of excess toys that he's just trying to get rid of. He just no time for the kids to shut up and stop firing. <laughs> And that's kind of the view that I held for a long time. It's like, like maybe I shouldn't see Santa, and like I think that is a view that a lot of people hold. Not in ter- they don't. I don't think they think about it in that way. That like if they see Santa Claus, oh, it's scary. But I think they much prefer the idea of Santa as an image as opposed to a person. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously because it's very difficult to have him as a person unless like yeah. you go to the mall or yeah. something. But did, even then, did you have any terror of Santa Claus rules? No, no, I didn't. But I, I do think you're right about the idea of it being an image versus a person because I think you know when when parents bring their kids to sit on a stranger's lap and it's they, not the same but no but when they bring their child to sit on a stranger's lap when the child is one or two the child doesn't know what Santa is yet yeah mm. the child hasn't learned what Christmas is it's just like oh here you know your mother's holding you no sorry now it's a stranger this big bearded stranger <laughs> he's gonna hold you now Happy Christmas! <laughs> <laughs> oh no, he's running away! When <laughs> like, the kid gets to five or six or seven, that are like, oh yeah, it's Santa. Yeah. But at but a certain then, young age, it's like even uh, then, I'd there. argue that like it's not quite the same because you know they have take for example the Coca Cola ads, mm. you know, and like all the the likes of those ads where you see like the you know Santa's this like majestic jolly figure and inevitably when you go to unless it's like an absolutely minted supermarket or something you're always going to get like a fairly fairly average santa with a fake beard and like you know kind of not like dirty or anything but not exactly impressive like santa suit it's just like kind of fine you're like i don't know about you but i vaguely remember thinking it's like well this isn't as good as i thought it'd be (laughs) you know i'm still delighted to be getting presents it's a bit of a thrill but i'm like it's not the real deal like even though like whatever you thought as a kid or believe as a kid, you kind of felt like this isn't the emotional heft that I was expecting, you know? It's... Yeah, although it was never set up for me that way. I think we were told, like, that it wasn't the real Santa. Like, I think that and, might be you know, the case for me. But that he knew Santa, Santa. yeah. It was yeah. Like, um, um, yeah, so I, mean, I feel like my folks got around that stuff in a lot of clever ways. Like, they also told me how they had to pay Santa, which meant that I never asked <laughs> for anything really outrageously oh, expensive. Oh, that's <laughs> vindictive and very clever at the same no, time. I still got stuff I liked, you know, yeah. and, and even some stuff I hadn't asked for that I was, I was delighted with. But there, there would be this sense of scale of, like, okay, like, I'll ask for, like, you know, one, two main things and a surprise or something. And yeah. it might be, like, you know... Uh, oh whatever it would be but my I know one of my little cousins was um, scared of Santa's beard in particular I remember oh, hearing okay, this okay. That, like, uh, like and I never saw like I never um, I think there was like, just enough of a gap in age uh, like I wasn't going to see Santa with him but I just heard this second hand and there's this line about like Nobby uh, sitting on Destiny and it's like there was just the big beard and like that in the universe mm. there is like a uh, the you know most depictions of God just show almost like a bearded guy it's like this yeah. kind of symbol of like Authority, um, yeah, patriarchal authority, um, <laughs> and I, I don't mean so like patriarchal in the how would you put it like the gender uh, sense. No, I do mean it in the gender sense, but mm. not only in the kind of like sense the way you would refer to like patriarchal society. You now I mean like almost in a like almost primal sense of like that, like going way, 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 mm. you know, back to when the Hogfather was a guy eating a bean. The like older bearded fellas would probably be the ones in charge. You know, they're you know. Um, and there's this sense of about that and I think the like the like we talked about at the end of this book that death sort of says how we kind of make up these absolute standards like justice and mercy and so on 
Um, but as a child, you don't realize they're made up and they have a kind of power of enormity because that, and they still do to a certain extent as an adult, but, but maybe less so when you can deconstruct them and realize that they're culturally informed or socially constructed or whatever else. Um, and this sort of goes back to kind of, um, I remember I mentioned this in our Small Gods episode where I said I remember the enormity of just thinking of mm. like a god and that there's like someone who's this ultimate arbiter of what's good and what's bad and everything. So I think for, for certain kids, like Santa would be quite scary in that way because there's yeah. that sense of like he's judging what's right and wrong, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, like the, I mean, the lines of uh, Santa Claus coming to town are often nowadays like picked apart and parodied because they do depict them as such a like foreboding figure. Yeah. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. You better watch out, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I, I think... Fuck you up. I think that... Uh, <laughs> but, you know, having, I said a lot, like I, I, I get it, uh, particular those, but I don't uh, hear any dark, um, like sort of like uh, gothic versions of Santa Claus is coming to town to hone in on that meaning of it because the definitive version of that song is the one with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think like that 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 part as a kid will be scary even if you mm. couldn't put it put it into those words. Just yeah. thinking like, oh, this is the guy who you know like he's ultimately deciding whether you've been good or bad for the year, you know, and you kind of feel like your your life's been laid bare in front of him, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's very much it, yeah, that whole idea of judgment. You know? mm, yeah. I'm boiling it down judgment, to a name on a list. It's yeah. so impersonal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I you don't know me, Santa. <laughs> you know me, you don't know my story. Oh. <laughs> I didn't do a list, but I did a drawing. It's me, in the nip with the dog. <laughs> so, Rose, I saw you kind of... Picking up there oh, when I said something about the Coca-Cola thing. Sorry, yes. Um, no, something just occurred to me, but I didn't want to interrupt you. But I loved the line in this where um, there's a specific line about, obviously, Santa Claus used to wear a green or something like that. Mm. And he was redefined as having a red suit for the Coca-Cola campaign uh, decades ago. And Death has this line. It's like... I know it was only recently that uh, he was depicted as wearing red or something like that, wasn't it? Mm, something no. Like... Remembered. Oh, remembered, yes. That's the line. No, he corrects her. It, it was only recently he... Started wearing red. Started wearing red. No, it was only recently remembered. White and red, blood and, and snow. Um, yeah. And it's it's probably true in real life. Actually, the Coca Cola thing is uh, a bit of a myth because the first time he's, I think, on record depicted as like being wearing red and white is in a poem. Twas the night before Christmas, which is from the eighteen mm. twenties or thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, well before Coca Cola, obviously he's. Yeah, they mentioned Santa Claus wearing red and white and that. I think um, they popularized. As far as I know, like uh, he he definitely was depicted as wearing red before, but. Coca-Cola very much popularised the idea. Mm-hmm. So now, like, it's it's always the case, pretty much. I think at times it was painted as wearing green or something. But there there's a version of Santa Claus that doesn't wear red, and it was popular for a while. But yeah. maybe it was originally red and white, and then yeah. became painted in different colours, and then was repopularised with Coca-Cola. Now it might be very accurate on Terry Pratchett's <laughs> part. He's Saint, Saint Nicholas, too, which was a bishop, so he would have been wearing red and white robes. Like, mm. he's kind of the, the basis for the Christian concept of uh, Santa that we're most of us are sort of familiar with in some form or other that would have been but I, I like that kind of primal red and white it's blood and snow and it's about mm-hmm. the kind of that like terror people must have had in those you know ancient days when the days start getting shorter and you'd, you'd wonder what's going on will this ever will we ever get back to a time where we're not going to freeze to death and <laughs> grow our crops again this is terrifying we need to you know we need to do something and whether it's something a boar or killing a guy because he was unlucky enough to get the right bean in his uh um food i think it's you know fascinating that like mm. that pr- I, I feel like those sort of primal uh folklore 
has a lot in common with the very vivid way you see the world as a child because that's almost like civilization as as a child you know mm. kind of you know, these things and you know uh, just one side note just to add into that i really one thing i really enjoyed uh actually adding on to rose's point as well was um do you know when Susan says, oh, yeah, he's changing, like, his robes, and uh, no, suddenly he was wearing, like, it was kind of brown, shabby robes, and then it was, like, oh, luxuriant, yeah. and then towards the end, she's like, it's actually, he was all of those things at once, you just never really noticed it before, so he was all these incarnations, and it's like, it's funny, because that's that's how Santa Claus is now as well, like, he is, like, he it represents a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but it's all from this, it stems from the same place, so, like, it's just, I just really like that, I thought that was great. Um... Can I ask any, is, is there any part of the book that you didn't like? No. Sorry. None? Not at all? <laughs> no. Really? I love this book. It is a great book. Um, I had to, there's one thing that, it's, it's not so much that I didn't like it, but one thing that stood out to me was um, the fact that we're kind of getting a retread of the wizard story from uh, Reaper Man. Do you know, and, and they even reference it in the book where they say, oh, remember when all that excess life was like hanging around and like everything took a life of its own and it's like jumping around. This bit, I think, is done better, but it's still a repeat and like not necessarily a bad thing. But if I was to look for one flaw, I'd be like, well, you are kind of just going over all ground there a little bit. But um, I also one other thing that I thought I thought I didn't like, but in retrospect, I think it's actually done just right is um I didn't think Death himself was given an awful lot of relevant things to do. Point being relevant, not things to do, because he has plenty to do in this, but it's basically just Death goes out and does the Hogfather's job and actually kind of sums up everything he does in this book, yeah. more or less. Mm -hmm. But it's so much fun and it breaks up the action going on in the background so well. And it is kind of the key thing you remember about this book. Like all the logistics and all the like cogs worrying all take place in Susan's story. But all the fun takes place in Death Story. I mean, like there are good bits in Susan's, like as well. But it's great that it has that to fall back on. It's a really well balanced uh, piece of storytelling right there. Well, all the important things I mean, are all the uh, relevant things. He's making sure the sun comes up by keeping belief in the hog fighter exactly. life. That actually, <laughs> that's pretty. pretty. But uh, I, I think there's there's two ways of looking at this book, right? And one is that we talked about Feed of Clay. Um, uh, last week and said how it makes as good a use of the um cast as like any city watch book or maybe any of the books that like uh volumes has something to do carter has something to do Anyo mm -hmm. has something to do cheery has something to do colon has something to do nobby has something to do like you know all these all these different yeah, characters and here you could say like dead has something to do susan has something to do the wizards have something to do you know and even kind of like do you have uh, the wizards almost broken in two? Well, like the faculty, the most faculty are faffing around, mm. kind of uh, messing around, and Rick and Ponder is using hex to find out what's actually going on, and Rick Cully's kind of going between them. Um, and then you have like Albert and Billius and Tiatime and his his gang. Um, so you can say, wow, this book juggles a lot of characters and gives them all something to do, or you could say it's really undisciplined because. The wizard's bit is just a retread of um, Reaper Man, and maybe doesn't really have to be in it. It kind of goes into explaining some of the stuff about yeah. like how uh, belief works. But I mean, theoretically, if you're being very utilitarian with your storytelling, you could get that done quicker. You could say that there's no real protagonist. Like maybe it's Susan, um, but she's she's you know there we go through big chunks without her mm. featuring in the book. Um, even weirdly, like. Uh, Tiatime and his gang disappear for a good chunk in the middle of the book uh, for, for a while. 
So you can either say like it's um you know it's really indisciplined and indulgent or it's really good. I I kind of I I feel as if for me just the, the whole Christmasiness of it makes that all that stuff tie together. You know, mm. like all like all of the bits. I'm never questioning why is this in here. How does this relate to the others? Because they all have this sense of Christmasiness of them. Like death in the shopping center being the like best part. It really it doesn't have a whole lot to do. Like the the bits, the wonderful touching bit with the um the little matchstick girl. Oh yeah. Uh, and the bit with the um King, old King Winchless type when he goes and gets annoyed at him for uh like you know those bits get the uh, uh, are wonderful and also get the idea of death as being Hogfather and is kind of enjoying it and you know. Um, will be pretty sad to go back to his old job. They get them across in much quicker time than a bit in shopping center does. But a bit in shopping center is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Like the, when when Nobby goes to see him and just regresses to childhood, and he goes from being like really angry to when he turns around to um, uh, visit, and it's just like, yeah, well, you're a foreign wash, but you don't really understand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just this like glib little superior remark to cover up the fact that he's being a massive hypocrite. It's brilliant, and and the uh, the like uh, owner, the um, shopping center, Mister Crumley, who's played by Tony Robinson in the um, Hogfather TV adaptation, presumably as a oh. nod to the fact that he does the the audios. Mm-hmm. Uh, Getting like, oh, you can't be giving stuff away on Hogwarts, and then sort of realizing, oh, I can't really say it. And when he when he gets Nobby and visit in, and he's talking to him, he's like, you've got to stop him. And Nobby's like, oh, what's he done? And he goes, he's giving stuff away. Oh, he's giving your stuff away. Well, no, it's not my stuff. Oh, well, I'm not sure this is actually a crime. Yeah, it's um, it's one area that I think the book stands head and shoulders over, possibly any of them. It's exceptionally well paced. Like, it's really, really well. The fact that it all takes place over the course of one night, I think, helps it a lot. It's very, uh, you know, brisk, you know, keeps it light, and there's nearly always something happening, even if it's not much. Like, that bit in the mall is a very kind of contemplative, funny bit, but because it brings in a couple of kids, and there's something funny with each one of them, like, um, oh, here's a sword, or, you know, that that wonderful yeah. uh, webcomic that you put up last week, actually, it's a, you know, it's a, it's an educational uh, tool. It says, what if she cuts herself with it? Oh, well, that'll be an important lesson. And there's that other wonderful bit about uh, the girl asking for the pony. Yeah. And she says, of course, it'll be in your kitchen. She says, it won't really be. No, of course not. It'll be in the bedroom. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, an exceptionally well-paced book, I have to say. Um, do you know another thing that jumped out at me as well? And, Rose, you might be able to answer this. Uh, do you remember, you know how, in the end, they're trying to get into get past these locks? There's, like, seven locks in them. Mm-hmm. Can you remember how many locks were in Die Hard when they're trying to get into the safe? Was it seven? It is seven. I yeah. think I was thinking it was it seven. Is. All right, that's. I think that's a reference to Die Hard, isn't it? And then he, it is now. Then your <laughs> teammate gets knocked off the tower like uh, Hans Gruber does. That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like it even better. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Just for people listening, if you could see Rose's face <laughs> yeah. right now, she's absolutely ecstatic with that revelation. <laughs> but I was. It only occurred to me this time when I was reading. It's like. Seven locks. This sounds kind of familiar, actually. Guys, is Susan John McLean in this story? <laughs> oh, she is. If, yes. we're <laughs> if we're casting, actually, yeah, who would Death be? Then I suppose he'd be like he'd uh, be the, the, the cop on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. All right, sorry. A reasonable point. <laughs> Just to go back a minute to where you're talking about pacing. There's one thing that I absolutely love about Hogfather, and that's that the chronology is 
slightly out of order but not really that's true the yeah. story starts earlier than you realise because there's a line a throwaway line where, where the kids are talking to Susan about whether or not the Hogfather's real and one of them comes up to Susan's like Susan is the Hogfather real because I think it might be Gawain or somebody but somebody said uh, that it's just your grandfather in a suit and everybody else said he doesn't exist <laughs> and that's before death entered the story yeah, that's so it's brilliant <laughs> and they mentioned something about the um the, when the belief, the the lore, the lack of belief, Tiatima and Arisen were channel, or channeling through the tea going backwards in time, right. and that's why, like you know, you have these early bits where, where people are um, feeling uh, skeptical about it. Oh, once you get like the whole the plot with the the teeth making the kids not believe in the Hogfather, that killing the Hogfather of the kind of like. Uh, them Susan having to save the Hogfather at the end by riding the pig and death saying it's human thing. Um I really felt like when I I can't remember what I thought about the first time, but I was reading it and I was like, like this is definitely a book that rewards you on reread. I don't think I probably understood the, like all of this the first time I was yeah, reading it. Same. Um mm-hmm. I'm not sure like and I don't know like you look at your way whether that's a, like that's kind of like uh that the plot's a bit too convoluted and does you know it doesn't come across or that it's so complex that you know it's rewards you for going back to it and teasing more out i think it's yeah i think it um you definitely benefit a lot more when you're aware of the themes and like the ideas it's going for like i remember the first time i read it and um the whole idea the fact that the hogfather needs to exist in order for the sun to come up and i think the first time i read it i think it was about 11 or something uh, when Death says, oh, yeah, the sun wouldn't have come up. It just would have been, like, a ball of, like, gas. And I think at the time I thought, wow, so everything here was for nothing. Like, But knowing the themes and realising the relevance of that, I think it it pays off. It does pay off, but provided you know where you're coming from. So uh, that's just my personal take on it, though. Yeah. yeah. I have a follow-on. Yes, <laughs> follow-on. Yeah, this is where I wanted to... This is what I wanted to say. Um... Since we already talked about whether or not the wizards need to be there and if it's an extra scene, if it's extraneous to the plot, you read it when you were about 11. I, I must have read it when I was about 15. Mm. But I definitely would have missed some of it. Like Terry Pratchett tends to talk in very broad, like he talks in broad sweeping statements about the nature of the world and mm. belief. And mm-hmm. these are very big concepts. And I wouldn't have actually quite understood it without without the wizard scene like the wizards are a very nice way of just simplifying it down yeah because they have to have it explained to them yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah use smaller words hmm. um like i would be a lot more comfortable with the big concepts now but at the time and i do think i was about 15 because hogfather is actually the first terry Bratch novel that i can remember reading in the library and oh. then going out and buying a copy wow. like, immediately <laughs> oh, wow. afterwards i remember i bought it in a debris bookshop in kilkenny Kenny Shopping Centre. I don't know why that one purchase is really specific in my head, but I know exactly when and where I bought it. Sometimes that happens, yeah. Yeah. But I think that it's beneficial because it, as I say, it simplifies a very big concept. And sometimes you need a concept as big as belief mm-hmm. simplified to, to understand the consequences of the Hogfather and deaths and deaths actions. I think everything, for me, when I was reading it then, everything would have actually been kind of um, the wizards would have been a linchpin in me grasping exactly what was going mm-hmm. on everywhere else mm-hmm. because as I say so much happens in it there's a lot going on and as I say very big concepts and you know what even if they didn't have that in the book now I think 
you might struggle a little bit to grasp the concepts. I mean, you know, death kind of does, as you say, like says it in very broad strokes, like what's going on. It would completely go over your head, like if you were like a, a young reader. And even now, I'm not sure how well it would be grasped because he does spell it out so well with the wizards. Like it's 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 excellent. Um, and the wizards give you the small consequence, which ties in with the you got to believe the small lies. Mm-hmm. Um, they give you the small consequence of the little things. The, there's extra belief going around yeah. and you find out first that there's spare belief in the world and it's creating these really fun little things little creatures sock yeah. sock fairies sock, eater of socks eater, eater of socks, socks. Yeah. gnome yeah and um, that's a small thing yeah. and then it pays off big time with the big reveal of well here's what's happening with the hogfather and here's where the extra belief is coming from nature of the world is changing guys but it's fine death has it yeah <laughs> they're, they're also really really funny I think mm. this is one of the funniest Discord books. Um, Definitely. Uh, I, a love bit, I love to do it when they're trying to cure Bilius from his hangover, and it's like the Dean says, I know what's good for hangover. <laughs> Drinking heavily the night before. And Rick Gully just like completely, you know, cold shoulders and was like, Yes, anyway. You know? <laughs> Actually, do you know what that bit always reminds me? I'm, I'm bring, I know I'm bringing it back again to Roald Dahl, but that reminds me a bit of George's Marvelous Medicine. Yeah, and there's yeah. a weird sort of like satisfaction about like reading is that we put this in and we put this in and then we put this in for this reason and like they do kind of a similar thing here but on a much smaller scale and it's just oh it's great and I love uh, Billius's reaction to it watching the god uh, <laughs> the god of wine god of wine <laughs> yeah, like, over take that you bastard yeah. <laughs> oh <laughs> I love how he's always, he's always going oh me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I'm still trying to like think of like flaws for it because I, I have a horrible feeling. Well, not a horrible feeling, but I have a feeling this is going to rank very, very highly on our list, like very, very highly. Um, yeah, but yeah, everything that I've come up with, it's you know kind of explained away or has a reason behind it. Um, I think Susan is still a bit of an odd character to figure out. If that's anything at all. Like I always kind of see her as a bit more down to earth Granny Weatherwax. Or a bit more flustered Granny Weatherwax, in a way. You know, she's very, very capable, but she does get, like, a little flummox every now and then. Yeah, well, I mean, it's good for to have that vulnerability, because you can't really place death in those situations for, like, a lot of the book. You know, you can't have Mm. him... Like, if he's under threat, it's, like, a cosmic-level threat that you probably only want to be, you know, uh, introducing at the end. Or not introducing at the end, but using it at the end. Mm -hmm. Um... So to have a kind of more human version, I yeah no I I I, I like her a lot here because oh, you're saying we've done solo music. I said I remember like not liking her and then realized that like oh I probably shouldn't like her that much because she's a precocious teenager and precocious teenagers you probably aren't really meant to like them. Um, and I feel like she's just nice balance here where her um her weird struggle to be normal uh like how kind of. Uh, if, if it feels it feels sort of relatable because we've seen her in soul music mm. um and then it also pays off nicely when she's uh Tia has her and she realizes oh i'm normal now and i can't do anything and that's um and uh you know her i mean her being the, the inner babysitter to defeat Tia Tima, the, who's in touch with his uh inner child feels very appropriate mm. um absolutely yeah and she's she's a nice counterbalance too between like uh, to death who's so sentimental about Hogswatch and 
like I'm fine with that, but I'm sure there are people who are more cynical about Christmas who would probably get you know pretty sick if they had a book of nothing but this skeleton saying how great Christmas was. You know, like when you have her uh, that speech that uh, parodies Yes Virginia, there is a Santa Claus when she's talking to Twilight about like as long as there's people who are naive and will believe in anything, <laughs> yeah. there's a hogfather like that kind of stuff and um, and again the explaining with those concepts too that she's sort of the voice of of logic where she's like no the sun will come up what do you mean why is this important you know mm. uh, like the plot works well enough that it sort of sweeps you along and you don't question it but if you did have those moments of like yeah what is this all for why is it important that kids believe in santa claus and um, you have horror voicing those doubts yeah, yeah and she's like being depicted well enough as a character that doesn't just feel like he's kind of um shoving those uh questions into anyone's mouth you think oh yeah susan would wonder these things and mm. um, i find it interesting how so many of the parents in uh this book and uh susan herself and i think it's great that this is her driving her motivation for the entire thing uh is how important that um this whole magical element of Hogswatch is maintained even though like she questions it uh, as you said colin that like uh she's like no the sun's gonna come up anyway she still wants to, you know, let the children have this belief, even though it kind of goes against everything else that she does. Like, you know how she says um, uh, she gave them the war, of, the art of war by General Sue yeah, to go away. And now he's now he's reading like she doesn't she doesn't treat yeah. him like a child. And uh, as a result, he's like, you know, growing up faster and he's like, you know, he's reading at a certain grade or whatever using the word disembowel in casual conversation <laughs> exactly yeah yeah and like she uh keeps telling uh was a twilight don't use a lisp to sound deliberately precocious or cute <laughs> and it's just it's it's interesting that like she makes the point of maintaining the belief in the hogs uh in uh the hog father at the beginning like it's the only bit that jumped out a bit to me like yeah it's very clever that like she words it in such a way and i think it's kind of her grasping at like a glimmer of how important that is like she, as i said she's very logical and like if she was completely heartless she'd just say no it's not doesn't exist but if she's completely thick like the rest of the parents is yes it does exist mm -hmm. but she has kind of an in-betweeny sort of way so she does care a little bit about it but not so much that she wants to trick them or lie to them mm -hmm. so yeah i just think that's that's really interesting that like uh she has kind of a complex relationship with uh gawain and twyla there's one point where um I think she's talking in her head and she she asks herself, do you like... No, actually, sorry, it's uh, Bilius, the god of hangovers. I think somebody asks her anyway, do you like children? And she's almost like, huh, me? Huh, no, no, I don't. But like, uh, clearly she does. She really seems to like children a lot um, just from the way she treats them. But again, it's... I think she's trying to mold them into the adults that she wants them to be. Yeah. It's... Um, it's, yeah, it's a very interesting relationship. I think there's a lot going on there. I suppose it's complex enough that you can kind of... It's something you can really appreciate about her character, much more so than soul music, where I didn't really feel... I didn't really buy her relationship with uh, Imp as much. But uh, that's just me. Um, yeah, anyway. Uh, I like the death for Shadows. He says, are you thinking of taking on teaching at a, like another scale or something? And she does. She is a teacher in Heap of Time, isn't she? Like, she's not just a governess, she, she has a whole uh, class. Yeah. Um, and I think at one point early on, oh yeah, before she, uh, uh, or just after she reveals that she's a governess, uh, she 
finds out that that's she's all she's really capable of because she was given great education but she didn't actually learn anything. <laughs> no, I, and that's actually really, really clever, I think, because that's kind of a big problem with the education system now because you are taught a lot of things that you're not really going to need. Like, you're not taught, like, how to balance your checkbooks and stuff checkbook sorry what the hell am I talking about you're not taught like important things you're like not taught finances. how to be a Wall Street banker apparently yeah. <laughs> but like you are like you're so much focus is going on like these other like things like uh, let's say I think the examples she has here are like mathematics and uh, geography like which you know are important if you're in that specialised field but well no I I do you said Pratchy quite about fancy being like an exorcist bike. I that, remember yeah, that's, my, yeah, that's my, why. my maths teacher had a uh, good, good analogy as well, where he said um, he, uh, he he played for the, the uh, Wicklow Gaelic football team, mm. and he said, when I go for training every week, uh, we like uh, you know we do loads of sit ups and push ups. Now never once in a match have I dropped down and start doing push ups. <laughs> <laughs> you know they're not they have no direct mm. uh, reference to this, but. They build well, the muscles that I will be using, and he says maths is the same thing. You might use long division in your, you know, in your day to day life, yeah. But the, like the uh, mu- like the kind of like mind muscles essentially you're using to figure this stuff out will ultimately help you. Um, so uh, I, I just like to go, getting an education was a bit like <laughs> a communicable sex- sexual disease. It made you unsuitable for a lot of jobs, and you had the urge to pass it on. Um, <laughs> As an academic, I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's it's great that uh, she. I suppose thinking about it now, I've actually had to think about at this point to really realize that it is interesting that Susan has this motivation, and like she actually develops in this book, like considerably. I mean, there was a little bit of developing soul music, but I'd argue that not a huge amount. Um, but in this one, it seems like a very you know, there's an arc which I appreciate now that I've realised what it was. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember, you know, I've only read Teeth of Time once, uh, so I may be wrong here, but I, I remember she seems much more comfortable with the kind of weird side of things in that than, yeah. than she is in Nightflutter, which makes sense. I would agree with that, yeah. What do you think about the whole nature? I mean, I know there's, there's a lot of talk in this book about, you know, uh, the romanticism of Hogwatch, but... Uh, the whole idea of you know goodwill in in uh, like around Christmas time and like how people like uh, display goodwill. Like, I I find it really interesting. In particular, the bit about the uh, the king and the old man, who uh, he brings out all the the this leftover spread that he had from his yeah. uh, hogs watch dinner, and like he brings it to this like old man who had, who's been looking forward to his pot of beans, and um, he just can't seem to comprehend it and. Your man's not taking no for an answer. He says, no, I've made a nice gesture yeah. here. You need to appreciate that. Yeah, I like it. There's the other bit too with the um, the lady who's getting carol singing and it says how like she was going to give it to, what is it, the, the poor or at least the element of the poor who were presentable and, yeah. you know, would say thank you. And that she like kind of edits the uh, like um, old folklorish songs because she considers mm. them too dirty. And then when the actual beggars come along singing to get money, she doesn't like that. And uh, Albert has some line about like charity being about uh, giving people what they want or what they need rather than giving them what you want to give. Yeah. Um. I I, I do think that's that's interesting about like how, um, this season Hogswatch Christmas brings out a lot of good in people and there's a lot of good initiatives going on, but there you can kind of critique the 
I suppose the the short term or the short sightedness of it. And mm. um, actually, um, b- b- on Sunday, myself um, and Ashing and Brian were. T- I I brought this up in reference to, you know, the little boy who uh, went viral where his mom took a video of him when he was being bullied. Right. And all these celebrities came out and uh, you know and supported him. And like I don't I don't quite I haven't looked into this too much because I, I know it has your motivations or whatever mm. else. But I I do feel like, this does feel so like you know. The part of the reason this um, gets people talking is, I mean, obviously for this one individual kid, it's horrible. But it also makes you think, gets you thinking about bullying in general. And God, it's awful bullying is going on. Mm. And yet, rather than focusing on the bigger picture and how to stop this, it's like, well, the let's make a grant for this one person. And not only that, but it's like, you know, will they be there for that fella, that kid next year? Or, yeah. you know, like after this kind of initial run of him being feted by all of these celebrities and brought around, you know, brought the premieres and events and so on. Then his life will go back to normal. And if things go wrong again, they're not going to be there. And now, look, I could, I, I'm using this as a kind of, uh, I could be completely wrong, but this time will tell. But it reminded me of, um, I was saying to Sashing O'Brien, uh, uh, sorry, people listening don't know who Ashing O'Brien are. Ashing was on our pyramids episode. Brian's her boyfriend. But I was saying this to him that it reminded me of this bit in, where death is talking to the king and he says will you be here tomorrow will you be here next week no you won't you came here tonight because you wanted to feel good um you want him to say thank you uh, and i don't think those celebrities are as quite as cynical as the um as the king is being in in this book yeah, but i think i, so I think that like yeah the, the yeah. yeah but the the flaw in that line of thinking is the same and there is something very christmasy about it you know that like mm. it's the one time a, the one time a year a lot of people um whatever show a bit of charity or do these other things it's, and in a way that's good but in another way it's it's like well you know it, it's not good enough to just uh remember these problems once mm. a year and make some token gesture towards uh you know towards solving them that makes you feel a little better but and that's the thing you can approach it in a really cynical or like a really kindly way cynically as you just outlined yeah it is like kind of problematic but you could look at it like in a really optimistic way and say, well, for anyone who's not very well off, Christmas probably would be the worst time of year simply because, you know, it's emphasized how everybody else, like, you know, has like all family, warmth, food, and anyone who doesn't have that is like, well, it's a good thing that like charities are reaching out at this particular time of year because it'd be the most difficult time. And it's also like the coldest time of the year as well, naturally. Um, but it's interesting that just when you're saying that, I think Terry Pratchett actually outlines that as well. Because uh, when Susan's talking to Bilius, uh, she says, okay, what if everybody on the disc was starving? What would you do to change it? And Bilius is like, oh, well, you'd have to adjust like parts of the economy. And like he's starting going to a big rant. And Susan just cuts him off and says, yeah, well, death, he just gave everybody a big meal. Mm-hmm. That's it. And it's interesting that she says that, highlighting this point. But then death goes on to like critique somebody else for doing the exact same thing later on in the book. It's like... I think it's just again it's just a big part it's a big part of Christmas in general yeah I, everyone has well a lot of people have a very a great sense of charity and goodwill then and um, yeah the cynical part of all of us will always point out well why aren't you like this all the time you know <laughs> that, that bit too with Death and the King has that good bit when he's going and Albert goes out to the King and says look if you send guards around to get this guy like you'll be in trouble and Albert thinks that like Death doesn't think of these things so I think I think this is like a wonderfully uh, complex part of it, and it feels a lot like Reaper Man when you have 
Death and um, Miss uh, Flitwort or Death and even Death and Bildor getting into arguments about what the right thing to do is and it not really the book not really coming down on one person's side mm. or another like here you have Susan and Albert sort of critiquing uh, you know I said like Susan almost critiquing Death for what he's critiquing other people for but him also pointing out these flaws of, you know, when he says to Albert, about like, oh, what's Hogwarts really about? The rich get richer and, the, like, the poor get, you know, the poor get poorer. And he's like, oh, well, part of it's about, like, you knowing people are worse off than you. And he says, why? Like, you know, mm. like, what, why don't you just help people instead? Um, and it, it sort of it reminds me of um, that great bit in Blackadder Goes Forth, the last episode, when... Uh, when Baldrick starts ranting about, like, why don't we all say, like, you know, no more fighting, let's all go home. And George says, well, it wouldn't work. And he goes, why wouldn't it work? So, oh, it wouldn't work is, it wouldn't work. <laughs> and I think uh, that, I, um, that, that episode always gets remembered for the end when they go over the top, which is lovely. But, like, that's one of my favorite parts in that uh, whole show, too, because you both, like, you both kind of feel along with, feel similar to George that, yeah, Baldrick's being really naive, but also... It highlights the inadequacy of like, oh yeah, we can't really say why the world can't work so beautifully simply as this. And it's sort of like that with Death here when he comes up with these, you know, quite simplistic uh, like attempts at um, making the world a better place on Hogsmeade. Night. And you kind of like as as he's someone who's looking at humanity from the outside and has this naive view. So you kind of feel as a reader relate to Albert and Susan thinking like, ah. Uh, yeah, poor old death, he really mm. doesn't know how the world works, really. But you also can't actually point to it and say, well, look, here's here's the actual flaw in it, you know? Mm. Like the... Um, yeah, I just... I, I like that complexity. That doesn't come down on, on one side or the other. I also... I like the fact that um, the person, like death, the one who is saying, why can't we just fix all this? Why can't it all be simple? Is a magical entity, you know, like... Uh, debatably fictional and all that you know which kind of reflects real life as well as why can't it all you know why not it's all very hypothetical you know it's not practical at all in any way um i think that's all i really have on uh hogfather um it's lovely and it's very merry and christmasy but uh yeah that's really all i have do you guys have any other major points no rose uh, no, I'm good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I should bring this up or not, but uh, since we were talking about uh, that kid who has been bullied, um, did you hear the backlash that came afterwards? Oh. oh. His uh, mother was then outed as a racist and then <laughs> uh, like uh, hate posts and everything like that, strongly so. And then people started to have this backlash against celebrities, like, oh my God, you're supporting this kid and his mother's a racist. Which Whoa, is that's, it's yeah. it's quite problematic as well because we were talking about how we're talking about how it might not be enough to just for for a celebrity to bring a kid out to screenings and mm. everything and to look after the kid for a little while and then disappear, but at the same time, there's then this reaction of oh yeah but the kid's related to a racist so you shouldn't have helped him. Yeah. So it kind of ties back into what you're saying about um in in Hogswatch where yeah but we want the better class of of beggar we, yeah, we, we don't want the yeah, poor yeah. beggar it's we want the presentable Victorian ones. deserving poor undeserving poor kind of yeah mentality. exactly you're yeah. helping the undeserving bullied child help the deserving bullied child <laughs> yeah yeah like oh, I, wow. it maybe ties back into that worldview which 
you know, Pratchett just has a very accurate viewpoint on, I think, I think his worldview is one of my favourite worldviews and it doesn't age, you know, it's always true. Mm-hmm. Pratchett is one of the best people for summarising, I don't know, summarising human nature. Well, I quite like the fact that in he raises a lot of uh, big issues in nearly all of his books, but he never puts you under the pretense that he's trying to answer any of these questions. Mm. Like, he's just holding up a mirror to society in, like, a very broad strokes, usually very twisted in, in a very funny way as well. But, um, like in this one, I mean, he highlights, like, how being naive can be problematic. And he highlights how we also need to have these fantasies to kind of, um, you know, get through life. But both sides are problematic. This is just human nature. It's Every single book is chaos. And like just like humanity, you know. Yeah, it's so. it's. I remember when we done Lords on Eighties, and we kind of said you could boil it down to be yourself, and we said that sounds so glib and yeah. like yeah. Uh, when you but I think part of the beauty of his books is that a lot of what they're about can be boiled down to something really simple, and that they're yet they're he manages to express them in these really complex and thought provoking, colorful ways. Mm. So um, if we if we don't have anything. More to say about this, we do have uh, two questions to address before we move on to ranking. And this is from our Twitter, uh, from Ghost of Shrimp Must Pass. Oh, uh, I like that. Good Ghost name. of Shrimp Must Pass at uh, Second Yance. And he slash she says, uh, they say, do you wish Discworld did more holiday specials, Halloween, Easter, summer holiday, beat special? What do you think these would be like? Well, based on the strength of this book, I'd say definitely yes. Um, and actually, I don't. They mentioned like Soul Cake Duck, which meant feel like the Easter money. Did they never mention a Halloween equivalent? Do they? No, I suppose it'd be kind of difficult to do the whole. You know, we, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, res- praising the souls of the dead and all that sort of thing when like. They're all up and alive anyway in this one. I don't. Yeah, I, I think that'd be really good. I think like red shoe, like kind of you know, um, either complaining about it or seeing it like as just you know, going up to people who are dressed as zombies or ghosts and be like, oh yeah, you know, you you want to join the cause? <laughs> um, little kids gonna run like more park dressed up as Captain Carrot. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't like a Halloween special. Um, I, I don't know about the other seasons, but Halloween tends to be like whenever a show or a, a book they're doing um, a seasonal special, it tends to be either Halloween or Christmas. Mm. The problem with doing a Halloween special for for the Discworld is that you already have vampires and zombies and, and yeah. Igors and everything running around every day of the week. Yeah, that's true. Like, I feel like you'd almost run into, um, there's a Buffy the Vampire Slayer thing where I think you... they think that um, the vampires and everything, they're just, they tend to be quiet on Halloween. They just give it a rest. Mm. I think that would nearly happen with the discos. Yeah. I think it's one that you could theoretically do in the Guard series because that's probably the most grounded uh, sub series of the uh, the Discworld, uh, Discworld series. Uh, Except overall. the Troll and the Werewolf. Yeah, and a vampire in later ones. And a vampire. But you know, like the the tone that go it, it it gives you the whole hard boiled detective novel tone. So I think if you kind of set it in some kind of Halloween-esque uh, season, um, I think it could work. It, it, I don't think it would work, it wouldn't work at all in, you know, the Witch series. It, that couldn't, it just wouldn't work, like. The, the Halloween in, um, uh, well, Halloween Watchbook might work in a way of just how, you know, for modern um, police and uh, fire uh, firefighters and things like that, Halloween's mm. this awful headache where, you know, people are going out saying bonfires and 
uh, fireworks and things like that and like if it if it's like this you know harvest festival style event where everyone just goes a bit mad for the day like those old kind of um you know uh ancient roman carnival festivals where law would be suspended mm. and uh you know it's it's this thing in angkor pork's uh tradition sort of what sort of have to put up with it you know they have to kind of maintain some sort of law but also just let a lot of chaos reign because that's what this event is about mm. like that that kind of that would make for a nice backdrop for them solving a mystery you know mm. where you just have so much stuff going on anyway that would be really hard for them to find the real crime that's being committed you know mm. yeah that could work um it's tricky to find um a season that would work but i was just thinking about it now and the only see i really like the whole the christmasy nature of it and I don't know if I'd want it to be repeated. And the Halloween one's a bit up for debate. But one that I think could work very well was if they did one centred around uh, Valentine's Day or something kind of equivalent. Mm. Because I'd imagine Terry Pratchett would have had a lot to say about this whole notion of, <laughs> yeah, of commercialised love and yeah. like the way uh, people treat other people and uh, you know, rela- focusing on the relationships in a Discworld novel because they're they're never central really I don't think like uh, romantic relationships anyway yeah. like I'm trying to think who would be the most romantic are there any romantic relationships maybe Carrot and Angua and even Rens and McGrath what Rens and McGrath hmm. yeah yeah I suppose that's not bad yeah uh, Reed Cully and uh, Granny Waterworks <laughs> Vimes and si- Vimes and Sybil is actually yeah. a really good one. Nanny August, see, no, 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 they're, they're all romantic in not stereotypically romantic ways, and that's why I think it'd be really interesting for all yeah. of them. You could almost have like a mini, like a group of short stories or something like that for Valentine's Day. Actually, yeah, that, that would, would work really nice, well. Yeah. All the couples in the Discord doing like, uh, you know, their uh, what they're up to for Valentine's Day or whatever the hell the equivalent of. Grey Tattoon Sex Day or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> People coming to Nanny Og for aphrodisiacs and things like that. Oh, that would be great, actually, yeah. Yeah, that would be good. Um, but yeah, that's all I can think of, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like a summer holiday beach special. It's, I, I would just think of some, some <laughs> oh, of the wizards. I would like to see the wizards oh, go to the beach. The Last Continent. They yeah, do, yeah, yeah. I was thinking that they didn't yeah. do that, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I suppose I mean that's the nearest thing um, to that. I think somebody asked Terry Patches that question before as well. Clearly, he says yes. I can see the wizards on the going to the beach. Mm. <laughs> Ghost of Shrimp Must Pass also asked. I'd be also curious to hear everyone's ranking of best and worst villains in the series. Apologies if this has already been done, but hearing Rose also weigh in would be fun. Since Hogfather is one of the most memorable ones, um, I don't think we've done it before. We done we done like best one off characters, didn't we? Yeah. And some of the villains came up in that, but um, I think we were they, saving they, it. They tend to be one off. In fact, the Auditors of Reality might be the only recurring villain mm. in the in the series, might we? Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah. So. Yeah. Who, it's, what it's do you what be... do you what do you guys think? Like best and worst. I mean, for, we we talked extensively about uh, Teton Tiatime. He is one of the best and. Partly weirdly because he's so unsympathetic and yeah. uncomplex in many ways, but just so vividly drawn. Um, he kind of suits the like this book about like childhood and belief mm. and winter and big, broad, colorful, terrifying themes very well. I think yeah, um, he'd definitely be very high up my list. He might even be the top. Uh, the main reason being, and this is something we've talked about extensively in all the other books is that almost every other antagonist, they tend to be set up quite well, and then they kind of turn into this very two-dimensional, raving lunatic at the end. Lily Weatherwax is a perfect example of that, who I, I love the way she's set up. 
like uh, it's very ominous that Granny Weatherwax is going to meet her sister it's like oh she's going to be her rival but she's younger she's using more powerful magic and you're thinking wow this is going to be the biggest match of her life but then when she finally meets uh, Lily she just kind of raves at her and says ah you'll never stop me and then she stops her so <laughs> but uh, Tea Time doesn't seem to have that so much like he I mean he does but it's in character for him because he is Again, this very childish, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, hard to anticipate character. Uh, you unpredictable. Know, unpredictable. Sorry. Yes. Thank you. Um, so it works for him to, you know, uh, do everything, fall off the tower in that uh, diehard mm-hmm. reference, and also come back again. Like, uh, in the, and that's actually quite a sinister little show. I think it's down to the fact that the stakes have been lowered so much at that point. You know, it's just, well, in a way, but, um, you know, it's not a big dramatic flourish of a scene where, like, you know, the fate of this town really yeah, rests on you. Yeah, it's just that, like, I'm going to, you know, kill death, which would be cataclysmic, but it really just feels like Susan's grandfather as opposed to death at that point. Yeah. So it just feels yeah, like true. a life, you know? So, yeah, I think I'd place Tea Time probably at the top. The only other one I think who comes close... Two, I suppose. The Queen, Queen just, of the just one more thing on Teton for you. Uh, yeah, go on. I that bit when he falls through and ends up in unseen university. When I, I I said when I can't remember first reading this whether I understood everything. I do remember like having this huge reaction to the fact that he was still alive then and feeling so kind of like excited and queasy that like oh my god like I definitely thought he was dead because the book is almost over and mm. like all bets are off now. What's he like if he's been. You know, if he's alive now, he's obviously going to do something. What's he going to do? What's it going to take to kill this guy? Like, that sort of fake-out of, you know, of, of his death does make him seem much more uh, dangerous and unpredictable. Although than... it does make you question, like, why did he go there? I mean, the the reason that's explained people disappear there is because children... Death doesn't exist in a child's painting. You never... Oh, why did he go back to Unseen University? Yeah. Um, it's just because they say the reality is thinner around there, and that's why they, all the, oh, like, um, belief oh. creatures keep appearing around there. And why it's not happening all over mm. the disc? Um, it's just because reality's thinner around there. Your man, uh, the, what's it, is it? Uh, chicken, he, chicken wire gets caught in the wardrobe. He ends up falling out of Burser's wardrobe. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Strangely, none of the others do. Cat's Eye and um, Peachy and Medium Dave and the rest of them don't end up in Unseen University. But like, it seems to it, kind of, it establishes at least that you know this mm. is where strange stuff's going to well, appear. I in order for you to like disappear there and appear somebody else you first have to die yeah I think I think he almost is dead and basically dead, like Rid Cully revives him through like you know uh, proto CPR oh right. oh that might be it yeah hmm. okay okay well I suppose that kind of makes yeah. sense yeah. But, but sorry I, I cut you off there yeah the only there's only two other that ever stick out in my mind that's the problem because a lot of the antagonists are somewhat difficult to remember um, the other one of course is our, from our top book uh, The Queen of the Elves but I don't even think I'd rank her as highly as the other one would be Vorbis, who stands out very, very highly for me. He's a great antagonist. Um, again, yeah, he has that he has that uh, issue where he kind of becomes a bit of a raving madman towards mm-hmm. the end. He's a bit out of character. Um, still very good, but um, yeah, I think Tea Time is the only one I think is consistent the entire way through, so I like it. Um, what about you, Rose? Um, I'm a. I can't think of a worst villain. I don't know who I put in the worst villain spot, but I have a tie for the best two. And it's between the auditors and Carcer from Nightwatch. Who is actually uh, Terry Pratchett's favourite villain? 
Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, That's interesting. For, someone for asked two him very that, and he, he said, because everyone knows a carcer. Yes. Yeah, and he's, he is, he's very, uh, like, a kind of uh, relatable, everyday sort of villain. Yeah, yeah. carcer is a very human evil, mm-hmm. yeah. which is exactly what Terry Pratchett's good at. And then the auditors, well, I mean, they want to destroy humanity, and they think that chaos is bad. I want the universe to be a lot of rocks moving in slightly curved lines. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So they're the great evil they're the cosmic evil mm. of course they wouldn't define themselves as such but they're the cosmic evil and then character is the human evil on the ground yeah i like both yeah i like yeah i like that um i yeah i, I really i i really like both of those for the breezy outline them and i love vorbus as i talked about in our uh um, small gods episode i love dios too i think like dios is i mean he's hardly a villain by the end of it uh He's, you can, because you kind of get a really good picture of pyramids? yeah oh, right, of yeah. like what um, what makes him tick and what he's doing what he's doing. Uh, it's hard to come up with like a bad one because usually if they're bad they're not memorable and how do you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like say like Salzella in uh, Masquerade. He's he's sort of how would you put it? He isn't that memorable as a villain. He's he's a good character for it, like as kind he's of a great acidic aside. But that book deliberately. As we talked about, the episode lowers the stakes and kind of doesn't attempt a really big villain, so you don't feel very disappointed. Mm. Um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't feel as if like oh, Granny Weatherock's only just facing this guy because the book has sort of set the yeah, parameters, their expectations in a different way than Lords and Ladies or, or Witches Abroad. Um, I I do remember like in, in terms of worst, I remember in um, is a snuff your man. It's like Lord Rust's son or nephew, and he never actually shows up on page. He's kind of alluded to running this smuggling ring and this slavery thing, and he never shows up. And uh, I think some like proxy for him does show up. It's like, it feels like a bit of a carcer knockoff. Mm. Um, like he shows up and gets beaten up by Vimes and Willikins, and that's it. And he's just he, he's like introduced like uh, quite quite near the end as well. So they they definitely felt like. I don't know if he's going for something similar of a masquerade of okay since Vimes is on holiday the stakes are going to be a bit lower like he's not going to be dealing with someone like you know Dragon King of Arms or mm-hmm. like these massive big conspiracies um, or someone really you know dangerous like Carcer it's it's just going to be like these few lads but I, I, rem- I do remember when I read it being disappointed and the same with um, uh Unseen Academicals, it's like a kind of, Andy Shank is a like hooligan type guy, mm. and he, again, he just seemed kind of quite small fry, and it's, it's weird, I mean, I suppose, we'll, I'll be able to put my finger on this, hopefully, when we get to these books, but you were saying, Rose, and I thought you put it really well, like, I mean, Carcer works because he's just so relatable and kind of uh, down to earth and so on, mm. and I feel like, 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 Andy Shank and your man and stuff are like the wrong side of that, where they just aren't memorable because of that and there's a real sense of a lack of stakes because like oh the villain's just this person and i don't know why it works in nightwatch and it doesn't or you know who knows maybe when we reread them for the books or for the podcast love a different opinion or why it doesn't in like in, in those but i i remember those ones kind of just disappointing me when i uh when i read it at least but yeah those would be some of the be some of the uh, the best ones, aren't you? Can I just actually just throw one more, well, two more names into the half. I can't remember one of them. I think it was in The Truth. There's a Mr. Pin and a Mr. Oh, Tulip. Yeah, yeah. they're very good. Yeah, they're very, I mean, I don't think they they're the main villains in it, but they're they're very very much epitomised the whole notion of henchmen. You know, evil mm-hmm. henchmen, and they're um, 
I really like I think it's Mr. Tulip who always says ing yeah. and he never actually swears and it's like why is he saying ing <laughs> and like for the long I think it's for I think you're about three times that you actually see them before somebody addresses the fact that he's not actually swearing he's just saying ing again and again which I love um that now having said that, like uh, that's all I really remember. That that needs like addicted to like flour or something, isn't it? Or oh, it's like mothballs, it, isn't it? He's snorting mothballs. Yeah, he thinks it's like a hard yeah. drug, but it's just something like that. Uh, I don't really remember much about Mister Payne. Just Mr. I, Julep, I remember um, that they do a very good job of that. They have like their strength and their weakness comes through the fact that they're new to Angmore pork, and you see it like a weakness in that like don't like they expect the watch to be a lot more less competent than the uh, Arabs are used to dealing with other watches but it's a strength that they sort of attempt things that de- like long term residents or criminals of like Morpork wouldn't because they just mm. assume oh no you could never try to frame the patrician because you know whatever whatever um, and, and they just you know uh, what's it the unexpected uh, virtues of ignorance or the unexpected values of, of ignorance that they have mm. um yeah, so I'm just, I'm looking at down the list of books on the inside of Hogfeather here to see to see if we've missed any, but um, I feel like we've we've covered most of most of the most um, most nice. memorable ones there. Mm-hmm. Well, in that case, should we move on to the business of uh, ranking? We do, but before we do, we got we got uh, Rose. We got you to um, solve here. We got Masquerade and Small Gods in a tie for so for we need fifth, to so we need decide. To, uh, so it makes more sense for you to decide which one goes above what one before we move on to Hogfather. Um, I am just putting one above the other, right? Yes, yes, yes. Perfect. Small gods wins. Ah, damn it. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. I can't I, argue. I, I appealed to this on, on Twitter. I said uh, on Twitter a few weeks ago. I said, so we had this argument in our last episode. We need your help. Colin loves small gods. Steve doesn't. Who's right? It's definitely that simple, right? <laughs> um, and Santa Baby is bad. Said small gods is excellent. Uh, and then we got into a talk about the the bit where um and the desert talk to the talking to the small gods ing mad Arthur to, to <laughs> said with most books this might be a matter of taste but small gods is empirically and demonstrably excellent <laughs> wow okay <laughs> there were a couple of people on the, the Discord Reddit as well who chimed did, in did well they, some did, of them kind of picked apart the idea of ranking them in the first place hmm. but I was like yeah yeah but if you've got to <laughs> yeah did anyone say masquerade or no well, I didn't frame it in terms of small gods or masquerade I just it, this I think this might have even been before this came up but I was like like what, this is this is the biggest disagreement we have. So oh, you know, okay, get, like, yeah. Um, so yeah, small gods at five, masquerade at six. So where does where does Hogfather go then? Well, it's very high, I think. Yeah, um, I'm I'm thinking as high as either new number four behind pyramids or new number three uh, above pyramids, and like to me, it goes behind lords and ladies and feet of clay because. Um, like the character stuff in both of those uh, are better. Like, okay, we we do death here, so as much like shows that his understanding of humanity has grown from the others. Like in, in the way that he kind of almost manipulates Susan into helping, and she like uh, twigs the fact that like, oh yeah, he is getting used to humans, yeah. and Susan grows a bit, but it, it it certainly doesn't touch the like the stuff with um, Cherry's gender identity or Vimes going back to Cockbell Street and Feet of Clay or McGrath becoming not a wet hen in Lords and Ladies and Granny Weatherwax struggling with her um, fears of uh, dementia and so on. So for like character wise, uh, they they move it ahead of me. Also the the tautness of the the plotting. Uh, like I I, I said the the Christmas theme of this kind of binds it all together, even though it's sort of very loosely bound. So I don't really mind. But if you mm. know if you're going to divide it. 
I, I would say that they're more skillfully written in how they're, uh, you know, in how they're, right, they, yeah. they don't rely on something like that. With pyramids, it's funny, it's um, like it, it touches on a lot of the same stuff, but the power of belief and so on. Um, but again, I, I would feel pyramids is a bit more tighter in, in its plotting. Uh, I feel maybe Hulkfather has a bit more heart. Like I, I thought mm. Dios is a very sympathetic uh, villain, actually, and Dios and Tiatima are probably on opposite ends of this cross spectrum of villainy, where like Dios is as close as you come to sympathizing and realizing why, you know, well, not only realizing why they're doing what they're doing, but sympathizing with the reason they're doing what they're doing. And Tiatima, <laughs> you're no way you're, you're going to like have, have much sympathy for him, unless you're one of these people who ships him and Susan after watching the TV adaptation. Oh, mm. that's the thing? Yeah, yeah, apparently oh, so. People. Yeah. Well, I mean, Mark Warren and Michelle Dockery are good-looking people, so. I yeah, but still. Um, um, yeah, no, it's funny, actually, because I remember for the longest time saying that Mort is, like, my favourite Discworld novel. And in a way, it's still true, but I have to, like, it's tricky. Like, um, I can see, I absolutely agree with your points anyway. Um, I Yeah, I can't see, it definitely doesn't knock Lords and Ladies off of its place. Thief Clay, I doubt it. I, I really like the... I, I love the, the seasonal theme behind it, I think. it's And the messages behind it are really quite striking. But um, as I said, like, Thief Clay is just much tighter narratively. Um, Pyramids, yeah, I feel like I'm always at fault that I haven't read Pyramids in such a long time because it just doesn't stand out to me as being... I mean... It, I should I, it's wonderful. <laughs> um, and I think it's more... Uh, Hogfather is more ambitious than Guards Guards, so I do agree that yeah, it should be true. above. Um so yeah, I'm 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 basically in the same boat as you. I'm not sure if it should go above or below. If I was to hazard a guess, this based purely on the fact that I've read Hogfather and loved it, and I haven't read Pyramids in a long time, so I don't remember it as well. I'd place it at number three, but that's just me. What do you think, Rose? I put it at number three as well. Well, actually, I put it at number one. For wow. the and foreseeable I, future. I understand but... that as well because there's a lot to love about this. There's there's a lot of scenes in this that I think knock so like. The entire bit in the mall, I think, is pitch perfect. I don't think you should change that at all. So, like, it's... Yeah. Um, Ranking is tough, though, isn't it? It's like if you were to come up with a list of your favourite songs, you probably wouldn't feature any Christmas songs. I probably probably (laughs) wouldn't feature any Christmas songs. You know, you never think of, like... like, And that's what I've always thought of Hogfather. I've always liked it, but it's always been, like, the Christmas one. You know, so even even with... Like, before I'd done this podcast, I'd never have a... I never had a strict ranking of Discworld books in my head... But if I thought of my favorite ones, it probably wouldn't feature because I just thought of it off to one side as the Christmas one. Mm. And the same, but if you're saying like what your favorite songs are, you might have Christmas songs that like you you know you listen to around December that you absolutely adore. Um, I've been singing Two Thousand Miles by the Pretenders all day. That's not left my head. Does the Turkish um, Christmas tree for me? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Classic. Great day. But you you wouldn't you'd find it tough to kind of rank them against non Christmas songs. That's yeah, true. And actually, I do the same with films because if yeah. someone ever tells me like, what's your favorite Christmas film? Um, it, I always bring it back to uh, Gremlins because Gremlins is one of my favourite films of all time but it's not up there at my favourite Christmas films because it's not really a Christmas film you know it's, you yeah. kind of divide it and you look at it two different ways um, yeah kind of the same as you I'm at a little, little bit of a loss because it's been a while since I've read uh, Feet of Clay but I just want to put it as number one because it's it's like my one of my very 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 all time favorite Terry Pratchett novels and it's one of the ones I have this best memory of like I mm-hmm. I don't I don't forget Hogfather it's the one I've reread the most as well mm-hmm. but I get your point as well and I don't want to mess with 
Lords and Ladies and Feet of Clay, but I would put it above Pyramids because even yeah. though I've read Pyramids recently enough now, love Hogfather. Fair enough, so. Hogfather new number three. That's I'll put Pyramids behind Feet of Clay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Cool. New cool. number three. Nice one. Um, well, thanks, thanks very much for listening, guys. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can search for Radio Morfork on uh, Facebook and um, Twitter. I mean, you can search for us on whatever, like Instagram or Snapchat, but you won't find us. But you will find us <laughs> on, on Facebook and Twitter, where you know you're well, you're welcome to. Hey, if to they get believe to us. they might find us. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. Um, and uh, we're also hanging around the uh, Discworld um, uh, subreddit as uh, Radio Morfork, so you can you can find us there as well. You can go to our website, radiomorfork.wordpress.com, where you'll find all of these episodes and our list and the, uh, the minor lists we used to um, complete and uh, what else you can find us on SoundCloud iTunes um, yeah, Podcast Addict and a range of streaming services if you want to leave us a review on any of those that'll be wonderful like the Hogfather like the small gods in the desert like the tree falling in the woods we need the we need the attention to survive, you know. If we if we're just doing this podcast and no one's listening, would it even exist at all? Would we, it make a sound? Oh. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the little readings on the zoo. Uh, we uh yeah, so like a, a kind of a review obviously helps helps spread the word. Um so that would be uh, that would be nice if you could do that as our hugs watch present. Um Rose, do you have, are are you up to much that you want to promote while we have you back on? Um not really, unless... Uh, Tales from the Forest? Hey, sure, why not? Um, <laughs> in my spare time when I'm not doing Radio Moorpork, which I haven't done for a while, um, I run an um, online arts and literary magazine. It's called Tales from the Forest. Um, Tales from the Forest. Uh, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. We are a quarterly magazine. Welcome uh, submissions of all kinds. Um, previously published work is all fine with us. And yeah, give us a read, submit your work. That's just, that's what I do. Yeah, I think if you like if you like uh, Hogfather, you'll like the stuff that mm. turns up in Tales from the Forest. <laughs> Thank you. Kind of uh, touching on the touching on the same roots, um, but yeah, we'll also we'll be taking a, a short break given the given the season, um, so we can eat, drink, and be merry, and so on. Um, and then we may, as we come back, then alternate between doing episodes on the main books in the series and doing ones on stuff like the TV adaptations and the uh the games the animated stuff basically just to give us um space to read them while also doing other things in our lives so obviously with interesting times and um soul music we had a bit of a gap we found it difficult to to do it every two weeks so we'll definitely be we'll we'll, uh come we'll probably like you know when, when we're back in the new year we'll be back but um the the uh pace of the um i wish we issue episodes on the uh, main series might have altered just a little but that's all for the future until then happy hogs watch happy hogs watch everyone happy hogs watch diddly 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 di